Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. So today I'm here speaking with two great people. We've worked together for a few years now, Victor Friedberg and Sarah Ackhouse from Food Shop Global, which is a multi-stakeholder investment platform for moonshots in our food system. But I will let them probably describe that better than I have done. But thank you both so much for being with me here today. Great to be here. Pleasure as always. <laughs> How are you both? And what did you have for breakfast? I was having pine cones for uh, breakfast. No, <laughs> I'm only kidding because, you know, we were talking about this before. You have a great protein um, cupboard uh, behind you, but there's a pine cone on it. And we were trying to figure out uh, why the pine cones there. But uh, that for another time. <laughs> Sarah, what did you have for breakfast? And, and some people I've been talking to, their breakfast has changed since the lockdown period. There's certain items they're not able to get hold of that they normally are. My breakfast, luckily, I've not had to change too much, but I had some berries and Icelandic yogurt. Oh, very nice. I had a yogurt shortage where I am. I'm, I've now moved to Connecticut and we did have a yogurt shortage. So I oh wasn't my. able to have my usual, usual breakfast for a few weeks, but luckily, good news is back. You know, uh-huh. I would be amiss here if I didn't put a plug in for lava. So we'd be happy to send you, you know, lava to, you know, Connecticut to make sure that you have your, you know, your daily lava supply. I have had some lava and it is delicious, actually. I've Excellent. tried it. Would love to, I'd love to have some more. <laughs> That's a okay, plant-based, well. plant-based yogurt for those of you that don't know it. So just starting with this big question that I like to ask all my guests, slightly daunting, but I think it kicks off the conversation in a nice way. If you are to think about the food system in 2050, let's say the future food system, what do you think it will look like and and how will it differ from today? You know, Sarah is going to have a much younger profile and sort of vision, you know, of that given, uh, you know, I'm slightly older. So I'm going to look at it as rapidly approaching for me. I think the main change that ripples through every aspect of the food system from agriculture to ingredients to what we eat, when we eat, how we eat, is that it's going to be more and more organized around nutrition and not around yield. And so you're going to imagine a food system in which instead of bushels per acre, you're going to start thinking about nutrition per acre. Because uh, one, people are becoming and certainly will be more literate about uh, nutrition and the role of food in their health and wellness. Um, There's going to be more um, pressure farming and you know food logistics to meet the challenges around uh, climate change and resource uh, availability. And obviously, this fits into a lot of the work that we're doing at Food Shop Global. But I, I think that's the main change. It's not a single thing. It's that nutrition is going to become the centerpiece 
And that's going to be more scientifically efficacious and it's going to be more quantified and it's going to be more precise. So that's, that's my take. And I'll throw to Sarah as well. The nutrition is like the new yield. Nutrition is the new yield. So you will see nutrition per acre and bushels per acre will go away. Interesting. Sarah, what about you? So I'm going to, I think, go with kind of some things that I hope for in a future food system. And I think one that we're kind of seeing right now that's in process is kind of this biological revolution. So we're moving away from chemicals and into understanding the biology of plants, of soil, of animals, of the microbiome, and being able to kind of capitalize on that understanding and scientific advancement to reduce the need for chemical inputs and really be able to maximize efficiency, you know, nutrient cycling, bioavailability of of nutrients in a way that supports a, a better environmental outcomes and better health outcomes. And the second that I, I hope for is that we kind of revalue the role of food in health so that as we understand and learn more about nutrition as a driver of health outcomes, which I think we can certainly see when it comes to uh, COVID-19 and who is most vulnerable to the worst outcomes from getting COVID-19 and the impacts overall that we prioritize food in our nutrition systems. So medically and, and that we kind of place the value on it that it deserves. Mm. That's really interesting that you bring that up about impacts on nutrition, on the complications of COVID-19. I was just, we just had a, an article out yesterday from Rob, our founding partner about one of our portfolio companies, Brightseed. They told me recently, which I could not believe, that only 12% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy. So there's 82% who are, you know, more at risk of potential 88%, sorry, even more at risk of, you know, COVID-19 having severe effects because they're eating the wrong foods. That was a crazy statistic. Yeah. I mean, I think our view, and I think many share it within the food system transformation community is that the system has been, I don't want to say it's been broken because it's been designed to do what it, you know, is doing for the last hundred years. But I think what COVID did was to expose more quickly and concisely the fault lines um, in that system and the stresses that that system was creating on human health and the vulnerabilities that you know occurred because of it and you know, a lot of complex you know complex factors in it um, certainly food nutrition and diet were underlying the existing conditions part of who it wasn't that they got infected in greater numbers. It's just that they were more likely to be hospitalized and certainly to have um, you know, higher rates for mortality. So, you know, this isn't a new phenomenon. This has been building for decades. And I think our view is it's a 
you know, once in a generation opportunity, you know, to rethink that food system in order to better prepare for the future. And I think there are four things, there are probably more that, you know, we can identify as uh, changes that need to happen in light of COVID, you know, clearly, and I think this is what the bright seed uh, conversation was around, you know, chronic disease, you know, diabetes, obesity, all of those rising levels, you know, created a more vulnerable you know, population that is clear. To Sarah's sort of setup for what she was thinking about in terms of the 2050 view, you know, that really is something that's been talked about, you know, more and more within the investor community as the food as medicine, you know, sort of frame. And that's going to take on more and more momentum as food becomes a opportunity to be intervened proactively as well as therapeutically. Land management innovation, we've been encroaching on natural habitats decade after decade. Some of that driven by expanded needs for food acreage and how we handle that land management, what land reforms we put into place are going to be important. And then the fourth, uh, which also ties into some of the things we'll be talking about in regards to Fuchat Global's work coming up, is around meat production, you know, large-scale industrial livestock production. While that's primarily been focused on bacterial issues, you know, the rise of superbugs, all of those things, uh, you know, I know uh, AgFunder has talked about throughout the years. You know, those are bacterial uh, infections that have been on the rise and, you know, larger chronic disease in, in regards to battling uh, that. But there's no reason why that wouldn't start giving rise to more viral, you know, issues going forward. So I think it's a wake-up call for how we think about protein production overall, specifically meat production, and uh, how we treat animals in the surface of uh, food. So just a couple of thoughts on, on COVID. Yes. Well, and before we get on to talking more about your latest food shot, thinking about COVID's impact on food tech and ag tech more broadly, and your former colleagues at S2G recently put out a great report digging into some of this, thinking about some of the new trends, you know, uh, well, not necessarily new trends, but accelerated trends, for instance, gr online grocery shopping. There's mm -hmm. a lot more of that obviously happening now. Trends towards thinking more about health and people drinking a lot more orange juice and people taking more vitamins and things. How many of those specific kind of ag tech, food tech trends do you think are here to stay? And what kind of reversion do you think there might be back to what people used to do? Yeah, so any of us on the front lines, you know, now, you know, either as investors or company operators um, are living that question every day. And it has been probably the key question for the last four weeks. You know, I can talk briefly about, you know, my view of what happened in the food industry um, from a grocery and retail perspective, distribution perspective, a consumer, a driver perspective. But looking at it from an operation standpoint, 
you know, up to March 31st, which was not that long ago, everything on the food system day-to-day workings of the machine looked the same. There was the start of some signals of some changes as people were becoming, you know, sort of more, you know, sort of home oriented and, you know, started to think about this lasting longer than the initial reports were coming up. Um, But what happened very quickly was the panic buying phenomenon and everybody loading up on pantry items, comfort food, things that they were familiar with and that had, you know, even legacy aspects to it. Probably if you were a big food company three months ago, you really didn't know exactly your place in what the next generation of food companies and food system was going to be. But then there was an amazing shift back, you know, to sort of more legacy thinking in regards to baking and, um, you know, meat consumption, staples, you know, state, all those staples that everybody was very familiar with, very comfortable with. And so there was a rediscovery, I think, of those foods. But at the same time, you saw incredible spikes for Beyond Meat and sort of Oatly and, you know, these sort of, you know, plant-based alternatives, you know, as well. You did see a lot of comfort food and pantry items. But I think about three weeks ago, you could start feeling a shift coming back where people felt, okay, we've got a safety net established, you know, in our pantries and we have a better feel for how distribution is working with the retailers are going to, I'm going to start, you know, buying more of the things that I was familiar with and were really core to my food identity, you know, prior to COVID and a lot of the, you know, the brands, you know, I've invested in and brands that you know, we all love that may have been, you know, somewhat, you know, put on the back shelf. What was really interesting was that what it exposed was that there just isn't enough, there isn't enough capacity in the distribution system to handle a change like that. And so, you know, you had 40% of the food market, you know, that was in food service overnight shifting to retail. And the entire distribution system was not prepared for being able to take on, you know, that much capacity that quickly. And so getting products onto trucks, if you were a brand, you know, that was doing, you know, let's say company like, you know, Lava, you know, if you were a brand like that, looking to get on shelf during that change in distribution priority, you know, you had to fight for your place on that truck. So there were shifts from the consumer that were absolute, that were real, that the retailers were responding to. Distribution systems followed the retailer and consumer lead on that, but they didn't have enough trucks in the system to manage that shift. 
So there was a lot of chaos and a lot of interruption for, you know, two to three weeks there as more trucks were brought into the capacity, you know, more systems were set up for doing procurement and forecasting in ways that, you know, were not being done before. I think we're now at the tail end of that. It's starting to normalize to the degree anything can be normal Mm. these days. But in terms of consumer buying habits, it's shifting back. Whether baking, which was a big winner for sort of this COVID period, you know, flour, I saw a statistic said, um, you know, King Arthur was up 2,000%, you know, during this period. You know, when it shifts back and more normalizes, will those staple products and the behavior of loving to bake again and spending time in the kitchen, you know, to do that kind of time-intensive but incredibly enjoyable work if you have the gene for it, you know, will that stick afterwards? We'll have to see. But I think health and wellness and more focus on putting good things inside of you I think that's here to stay for sure. There is at the same time going to be a tension between when you look at the unemployment statistics and the number of people who have just completely lost their incomes, there's going to be a tension between the priority on putting good things in your body and affordability and what are people spending money on? And, you know, there has been movement towards putting higher quality, you know, nutritious food, adopting diets that are, you know, higher quality and higher quality meats, higher quality proteins. Is that going to be something that people can afford to do? And how are they going to balance that? You know, when you look at the number of people on nutrition assistance growing dramatically, when you look at, I think they said one in five kids now is food insecure. Yeah. Have been wondering that with you know some of the alternatives or the some of the nice to haves, and at the same time, while you've been seeing spikes in sales of some of the plant based you know meat consumption or or purchases from in the homes is also has increased, of course, because it's gone from food service to the home, and that kind of reverting back to what you know. I wonder how much people want to be experimental at this time as well. Just on that, just quickly, because it, it's an interesting idea and point that you're bringing up there. I think that, you know, the surge in Beyond Meat demand and other companies like that, I think part of that was, hey, we were eating this before, we just want more of it stocked up in our, you know, sort of freezer, you know, um, as a safety net. I think there was some of that for sure, just like any other product. But I do think part of that number, and I was on a, um, I was corresponding back and forth with uh, Ethan Brown at Beyond Meat uh, last week, you know, just catching up. I had led the S2G uh, investment into that. That was actually the first investment for S2G, and it was my first investment as a lead in the fund. And uh, we were kind of reminiscing back into the early days beyond me. So, you know, I started tracking that company in 2013, actually through Food Tech Connect was the place in 2013 that I first found out about Beyond Meat on on one of the blogs. But when uh, I met Ethan in 2014, you know, he was talking about this vision for a meatless world, 
you know, it wasn't a militant view. Beyond Meat always had a flexitarian, you know, approach to the sector, but it was one of these, you know, what ifs, you know, could we imagine? And I think what COVID brought out was a understanding of not only the stakeholders of the food system, but also in consumers of asking more and more, where does our food come from? And understanding the potential impacts around and the implications of their food choices on not only the food system and their own personal health, but things like COVID. And so I think that could be a lasting, you know, stickiness on the other side of this for those kind of companies, you know, in which this recognition that we need to understand more about where our food comes from, how it's made, you know, what implications does it represent? And I think that's exciting. Yeah, definitely. And and around some of that traceability, you know, technologies on that front as well and things in the supply chain, you know, some consumers that never really have faced anything like food insecurity or food shortage, whether it's myself not being able to get yogurt, it's something that's kind of new, right? And, and people start to think more about how that food is getting to that supermarket. So I think you're right on that. That is exciting. And the Chinese have sort of been dealing with this for a lot longer than we have. So, you know, obviously they had a pork production system that was completely decimated by, you know, one of these viral strains and... African swine flu. Yeah, that had major impacts on how they saw the food system, how they dealt with food security, resiliency, global markets, all of that, and, you know, gave, you know, certain some momentum to, you know, companies like Omnipork and, you know, companies like Beyond Meat now just launched in Starbucks in China. You know, I think they've had more history of the implications of food system tragedies to how their societies function. We're in the early innings of that understanding. We're way behind, but I think we're going to be catching up now as a result of this. I would add that also there's potential for other technologies that are working in and around livestock farming to make them more, well, not just more efficient, but to make them safer and to keep those animals in a better place. And you guys are, in fact, you know, protein source agnostic, which I guess gets us to the crux of our conversation today, which is your new focus area for Food Shot, which is around precision protein. So, Sarah, can you just give another bit more in-depth explanation of what Food Shot is from what I sure. introduced with and then talk about how your different focus areas work? Absolutely. So yeah, we're, like you said, um, a collaborative, integrated investment platform. We have about just over 20 partners from around the world. They include universities like C. Davis and Wageningen University, Rabobank, Mars, Rockefeller Foundation, the Builders Initiative, the Foundation for Food and Ag Research, Venture Funds and Family Offices, Armonia, Acre, Yamaha Motor Ventures, Grantham Family Foundation. And so we, we have this really uh, diverse range of partners and that allows us to have a capital continuum of both 
prize or grant money over $500,000 for researchers, early stage entrepreneurs and policy work. And then also equity investment of up to $10 million for for for-profit businesses. So we're able to support innovation throughout the capital life cycle from very early in the lab through the needs of a business, early stage investment, later stage investment, even growth stage investment. And we are really laser focused on the biggest systemic challenges to the healthy, equitable, sustainable food system that we seek. And so each year we focus on what we call a food shot. So a moonshot for better food. And we put out a framework kind of outlining our vision for that, the future that we seek in, in that area. And so our first food shot was focused on innovating soil 3.0. So the idea was a new soil operating system and really making soil a medium for increased nutrient bioavailability, increased farmer profitability and ecosystem restoration. And now we had a really exciting cycle. We had hundreds of applications. We awarded a prize to a couple scientists, one from Colorado State University, one from Wageningen, and a third seed prize to Thorne Cox, who's doing the Open Technology Ecosystem for Agricultural Management, Open Team. (laughs) And then we had an investment of $3 million in Trace Genomics, which is doing genetic fingerprinting of the soil microbiome. And we're continuing, we're doing a deep dive with soil 3.0 in three specific areas, the carbon measurement, soil carbon measurement, microbiome functionality, and rapid adoption of regenerative soil practices. And then we also launched just two weeks ago, our precision protein food shot, which is a new framework for a protein system that better aligns regional supply and demand, prioritizes nutrition, really kind of the way Victor was talking about is nutrition being more important than than yield and and has a more rigorous understanding too of what protein is, that it's not just a single thing. It's composed of these 20 amino acids and you have to have the balance of those amino acids to get the functional benefits of protein. And then also looking to reduce the kind of negative externalities of our current production protein system, whether it be zoonotic diseases or bacterial uh, threats or water contamination or land use challenges. So we're very excited about that new one. Yeah. And what have been some of your biggest learnings around protein as you research this topic? You know, obviously protein is in high demand, whether it's in emerging markets, shifting from more grains and rice into more of a meat diet, that increased demand, or it's over in the Western world and people associate protein with paleo diets and being healthy and getting fit and, and muscly. But what have, you know, what have been some of the learns you've had? Because protein is obviously much more important than just some of those things. I think the way I would answer that is, and it was, it was similar in the time we started taking and putting together our soil framework which is just how little we actually know. I think that was the fundamental understanding that we came to quickly with soil, was that soil science was really just in the early stages of being fully understood. And so, you know, how are you going to, you know, create global 
approaches to you know soil health and regeneration and things like that if you didn't really understand how soil ultimately worked. I think that's the same with protein. And I think the reason why we named it precision, you know, protein is just how imprecise the system is. And so we tend to think pretty simplistically around protein, plant versus animal, regional versus global, good versus evil. It's pretty much associated, I think, you know, almost the equation is, you know, health equals protein and protein equals meat and dairy. And so if you have more protein, you have you know, more health. And I, and I think that is the underlying understanding of people in the market and certainly the way that the system has been, you know, organized till date. And that equation just is wrong right? It's much more complex, you know, than that. And it's almost like we've created a kind of a blunt instrument on protein that's in need of a much more surgical approach to how we produce, how we process, you know, how we consume. And so, I found, you know, in thinking about this, just how many questions came up, you know, relatively quickly and the thinking was like how much protein actually do we need you know who needs it and where where are we over consuming and where are we under consuming protein what amino acid profiles are most in need for like a human population how much do i need you know, individually, what protein sources, agriculture, meat, seafood, mycoalgae, insects are best suited for, you know, what regions, you know, what economic and environmental pressures are there in those regions, what cultural traditions are in those regions, how much protein are we wasting? Can we waste less? Are we deteriorating the potency of proteins through how we produce and how we process it? Could we be less invasive? And are there other molecules or peptides and enzymes that can make proteins that we do produce more bioavailable, therefore more efficient? So I started asking myself those questions and came to the conclusion that we're not really approaching this very precisely. And that, you know, if we're having stresses at 7 billion people, what are those stresses going to look like at 10 billion? You know, so we better start looking at this more holistically. And in recently, I've been starting to think of it almost as like, you know, kind of a body for protein. So, nutrition that we talked about before is almost is the spine right so of a future protein system nutrition needs to be the spine sustainability and resiliency kind of needs to be the brain and accessibility and democratization sort of needs to be the heart and we need to bring 
new science, new technologies, new methods of production, new methods of processing, and really think about our individual profiles as it relates to protein, because we're not all the same, right? Like we're all in different life stages in our journey in life, infant, um, you know, child, teenager, adult, you know, elderly, those all have different nutritional needs. Protein is a macronutrient that has different implications for those life stages, you know, different needs, male, female, different needs in regards to your health condition and the bright seed data on, you know, 80% being actually clinically unhealthy but a wide range of different chronic diseases and needs, you know, for potentially nutrition and food to play a, you know, role. All of that's got to be put together into a new way of thinking about how we organize protein system so that we can bring all of these great outcomes, stay within planetary, you know, boundaries and make sure that, Everybody, you know, has access to an important macronutrient like protein in the future going forward. So, so there's a lot of questions there. And that's, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for innovators and scientists to answer some of those questions and, and bring some of those solutions to you. And you went through some of the key buckets, but you have a few key areas that you're looking for people to apply or be nominated for. And one of them is around the science. So as you mentioned, there's still a lot that's not known. So you want people to come forward with new thinking on the science. Uh, and then you're looking for companies or, or projects that are looking at, at novel ways of production to be more efficient environmentally and otherwise. And then there's the processing piece. And then there's the personalization piece, which I find really interesting very exciting, but also, wow, what a big task, very complicated. But that concept that you were just talking about where different people are going to have different protein needs. Can you give us sort of some examples of the types of companies that might be out there already or um, scientific projects that you know of out there that would, that would fit the bill to be relevant for this food shot precision protein? I mean, Sarah and I probably have our own little, you know, sort of uh, favorite poster uh, children as we sort of think about this. But, you know, I'll name a couple and then uh, Sarah feel free to dive in as well. You mentioned Brightseed. I think they're a great example of how, you know, plant-based, you know, ingredients can be used for scientifically proven ways of improving health and wellness. I think that's important because I think most people don't realize or they don't think about protein coming from agriculture, right? I think everybody sort of puts this divide line you know, between where our protein source is coming from, mostly proteins coming from the animal kingdom, and plants are bringing pretty much everything else. Well, that's not the case. Protein, you know, in different amino acid forms with very different amino acid profiles that have specific mapping to our health systems come from agricultural sources as well. And so it's going to be more and more important you know, as we start thinking about precision protein, 
what's the role for agriculture to play? And a company like Brightseed is going to play a role, you know, in that. Grow Intelligence, which uh, a company you're probably, you know, quite familiar with and uh, the work Sarah Menker is doing, you know, that's using data to better map demand supply systems, you know, globally, region by region, you know, continent by continent about where is the protein, you know, what are its costs, what's its nutrient density, and really coming up with an amazing global map and set of uh, economic dynamics that can um, help shape where we put the resources into um, our protein supply chain. I think that's a really interesting company. A company called Digestiva, which is a new company that has an enzymatic approach that would allow proteins that you're consuming to have better bioavailability. A company like that's really interesting. A company like Caberti, and they're, I guess they've been renamed and reformed as uh, air protein, you know, using these hydrogenotropes, uh, these microbes that they've bred that can, you know, take CO2 and, you know, create, you know, new protein isolates, you know, um, from that completely decoupled from, you know, agricultural systems and meat production systems, but, you know, with a lot of promise on, you know, being able to uh, create protein with very little um, inputs on the resource side. So there there are a couple of examples of, you know, things we feel fit within the um, precision protein umbrella. Sarah, did did you want to mention a couple? I'll just mention one that just raised a series A, Lemna, the dry grow, I guess. Oh, yes. We wrote about them yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you just wrote about it. Yeah, so, you know, new kind of source for animal feed that could reduce the pressure on on soy-based animal feed. So that would be making, you know, livestock farming essentially more efficient and sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the the kind of algae-based feed additives that can reduce, uh, significantly reduce methane. Emissions, yeah. Emissions from cattle. Some of the, you know, tools to support rotational uh, grazing of livestock so that you can better integrate them and actually use them as a tool to improve soil carbon uh, sequestration. And then I think there's some really cool companies that are using, you know, like insect or insect. I don't know how to, I don't know. (laughs) 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 But, you know, that are looking at kind of the circular economy where you are using food waste to feed insects and then you're using the insects to feed the livestock. It creates reducing waste and upcycling a variety of ingredients. I'll just mention a couple more because I just thought of them as Sarah was mentioning that. And a really great example, not of just precision protein as an example, but as a process. So um, a company you're all you know quite familiar with, an SDG portfolio company uh, called Myco Technology, you know that's using um, shiitake mushrooms through a fermentation you know, process to create a you know very umami-like protein isolate. Now I think a lot of people probably listening to this podcast are familiar with that company, but what's fascinating about that. And what I think is the real precision protein piece of it is how they came up with that. And so 
when S2G and I actually personally invested in, in the company, they were a um, flavor modulation company, right? So they were creating these bitter blockers that would be used for coffee or um, stevia was in the original focal point to take those kind of afternotes that people might find less optimal from a taste perspective and extract those out of these commodities so they could be more fully accepted by consumers. And so they were creating all of these bitter blockers through the use of this mushroom technology. And then they were seeing huge waste streams of mushrooms. And one day, just somebody asked the right question is, I wonder what's in those mushrooms? <laughs> or is there anything usable in there? Maybe there's protein. Right. And so that idea is just fascinating to me and really fits into our uh, precision protein frame is if we're in a resource-constrained world and we're putting all of these resources into growing crops and you know, producing and farming protein, uh, whether it's on the animal side or you know, through other means like mycotechnologies, there is a responsibility that we have as a society to understand that we have to find ways of making sure that every molecule, every benefit, is extracted and farmed because the cost of doing all of this, you know, on environment, on human health, all of these things, you know, have to be monetized at a certain point. So that mycotechnology had that idea, you know, what's in all of that waste? Is there something usable? Lended itself to a scientific analysis to find out whether that was the case an entirely new business case, which now they've been able to capitalize on. So I think that's a fascinating example. Yeah. And another example of kind of the precision protein process is just like there was a recent study that came out that showed that like millets and legumes combine to make a complete protein, right? And so it's not necessarily about having one source that gives you all of the nutrients you need, but what are the combinations for humans, again, it doesn't have to be an animal source protein. If you have the complementary plant or agriculture crops, you can get all of the amino acid, like the lysine, which can sometimes be a limiting factor. Um, but if you, if you have these complementary protein sources, you can meet that nutritional need. So the millet and legume combination does that. And, you know, millet is also a drought and heat resistant crops. So it, you know, ends up being quite powerful in, in terms of meeting nutritional needs. Yeah. I mean, so that is a very, very diverse set of, of companies that you've spoken about and what you're looking for. And I think what I love about this challenge and your approach to it is that there is no, there's no silver bullet. There's no right or wrong. You're not, you know, plants are good and meat is bad. And I think also it really speaks to how in our industry, we really need the brightest and best minds working on this, wherever they're coming from and whichever their angle they're taking. And you guys are, are really looking to get everyone involved, which I, which I think is awesome. So, you know, anyone listening that has any innovations or any ideas or, or wants to nominate someone that they know that's doing work in this field, please do uh, reach out to Food Shop Global. 
and apply. So thank you guys. I think we're definitely at time. That's been such an interesting conversation. Could keep talking to you guys all day. But um, I hope you're staying safe and, you know, we'll speak soon, no doubt. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.